I know a lot more people are now carrying tourniquets with them. Um, and I, I wholly support that as well as other things. You know, if you have the ability to bring chest seals and, and different Israeli bandages, stuff like that. I know there's some ankle um, medical holster devices, for lack of a better term, off the top of my head. All right, should we do it, Matt? All right, let's do it. <laughs> but, you know, get that training. It's, it's really worth it. Get, you know, there you go. Meet the Pressers with Matt Mallory and Clint Macrow. Brought to you by Public Safety and Education and the Trigger Pressers Union. And now, your hosts. This episode is made possible with the generous support of Shooter Technology Group, ASP, Saber Red, Lee Armory, and the SFD Responder 2.0. Thank you. Hello and welcome to Meet the Pressers. I'm Matt Mallory. And I'm Clint Macro. We have a special guest here today, Joshua Prince. Josh is one of the preeminent Second Amendment lawyers in the country and he's a champion of liberty and I'm just so proud to have him here on the show today. Josh, tell us a little more about yourself. What got you into doing what you do? Wow, well, Clinton, Matt, with that type of introduction, uh, I don't even know where to start, but thank you. That's very kind. I've always been involved in firearms. I've had an interest ever since a young child, and I've just followed that interest along. When I was in law school, I had a unique opportunity. I had an elder law professor who had a uh, blog that was considered in the five, top 5% across the nation in elder law issues. And he had offered to the students that they could write a blog article he'd put on his blog, uh, and that would be 5% of his grade or such. And so I came up to him after class, and I said, well, I have a little bit of an unusual idea. And he says, well, what's that? I said, I want to write about Grandpop's machine gun in the trunk. I said, as our veterans are dying off, their estates are finding these firearms, don't know what they are or how to handle them. And he goes, yeah, I don't know about that. He says, but I'll tell you what, you write the article, I'll review it, and we'll go from there. So I wrote the article, gave it to him, and he comes back to me and says, you know, I've been practicing elder law for 30 years. I've never known to measure the length of a barrel on a firearm. Hmm. I never knew how to determine whether it might be a machine gun. He says, this is just unheard of information. So he published it on his blog, and it went viral uh, across the U.S. We had estate practitioners contacting us from all across the U.S. saying, wow, this information is just not out there. We never knew about it. And so I ended up, I think, writing two or three more blog articles on the the same area of law, basically the National Firearms Act, uh, for him. Uh, And thereafter, started getting contacted by local bar associations asking me to come and teach lawyers while I'm still in law school about the firearms laws. (laughs) So he and I would go around to local bar associations and we would uh, put on presentations and teach lawyers about the National Firearms Act as well as Pennsylvania firearms laws. And once I graduated law school, it wasn't long thereafter that I was contacted by the Pennsylvania Bar Institute and asked it to basically do some presentations on a much larger uh, platform for attorneys in Pennsylvania. And from there, it just took off. Although when I started practicing law, I was doing a splattering of all different areas of law, family law, criminal law, workers' compensation, social security disability, uh, and firearms law. Within a year and a half, I was so busy just doing firearms law that 
that's all I've done ever since. I, I handle obviously some other constitutional issues that pique my interest. I love uh, different constitutional issues. I uh, not too long ago litigated a school due process case here in Pennsylvania and was successful before the Commonwealth Court. So like I said, if there's interesting constitutional issues, I'll take them. But my primary focus is on Second Amendment litigation. Yeah, with on the in regards to education, it's it's interesting that uh, that you found in your industry people didn't know what was going on with firearms. You know, I I train instructors, so does Matt, and quite often we take for granted the information that we have up in our head. Oh, like well, everyone knows that. You know, everyone knows what a revolver is, whatever. But it's uh, interesting how taking that educational message uh, has has helped help the industry and how many professionals there are, they don't really understand how firearms work or, or how to handle a case like that if it were to come up. And, uh, and truly, I still am very concerned because very few criminal defense attorneys know the first thing about the firearms laws. Although if you look in the yellow book or that, they'll all say they handle firearms law cases and that, but they really don't have the first clue. And day in and day out, I speak to individuals who were represented by especially competent counsel, counsel that I know know generally what they're doing in the criminal defense realm, where they were advised, oh, no, it's just a misdemeanor. You don't have to worry about that. <laughs> Next thing you know, they go out, attempt to purchase a gun, they get denied, and now they're being prosecuted for making a false statement. Even recently, we had a situation where a, a very well-known judge in Lehigh County, who's been on the bench a very long time, advised an individual, oh yeah, once you're done with probation, you can get your guns back. There won't be any problem. The individual uh, was not represented up by us at the time. He basically went up to the judge and said, well, your honor, uh, I basically need to hunt over the upcoming hunting season because that's how I provide food for my family over the winter. Can I, you know, get some sort of exception from the court? And the judge says, listen, you have no problems during probation for the next three months. You petition me. I'll review it, and if everything's good to go, I'll end your probation early so you can get your guns back and you can go and hunt. In fact, he does that. The judge directs that his firearms be returned to him. For some reason, no background check is done by the sheriff's department. Uh, he's given back his guns, but he goes to the range and he's having an issue with his hunting rifle. So he goes to Cabela's to purchase a new hunting rifle, gets denied. Next thing you know, uh, felony charges are filed against him in Berks County for making false statements on that form when he attempted to purchase a gun. Thankfully, we were actually able to still get the court record, even though it had occurred a number of years prior. Uh, and we were able to show that, in fact, uh, the judge did tell him from the bench that he'd be good to go as soon as he was off probation. So I'm still really trying to work on informing both the judiciary as well as attorneys here in the Commonwealth as to what triggers disabilities, because a lot of times attorneys will only look to Pennsylvania law, they'll never think to look to federal law. And quite honestly, I'd say probably 60 to 70% of individuals, maybe even more, become prohibited long before under federal law than they will under Pennsylvania law. In essence, Pennsylvania law is more lenient than federal law, right. but at the end of the day, it doesn't matter if you're prohibited under one or the other, yep. you're a prohibited person and you can't purchase, possess, utilize firearms and ammunition. And that's the, a key point that most people overlook is the fact that when you become prohibited under federal law, it's also from ammunition. So think about that 500 round brick of 22s, that's 500 separate felony counts that person's looking at and may not have the first clue. Now, 
in that vein, just so the listeners know, there was just about two months ago a recent uh, U.S. Supreme Court decision where uh, the U.S. Supreme Court surprisingly uh, held that in any type of prosecution, the Commonwealth or the U.S., uh, depending on whether it's under state or federal law, has to actually prove that the person knew that they were a prohibited person. Uh, which is an interesting dynamic, and we'll have to see how that plays out in the courts. But I've long said that we really need to change the laws here in Pennsylvania. We need to provide individuals with notice when they become prohibited persons. And to me, that would seem to be the type of reasonable new regulation that everyone could agree upon, because whether you believe people shouldn't have guns or you believe everyone you know who isn't a prohibited person should have guns, Notifying the person that they're prohibited, placing them on notice so that then the Commonwealth would clearly not have any difficulty in prosecuting that person mm-hmm. uh, if they thereafter attempt to purchase a firearm would seem to benefit everyone and be something that everyone can get behind. Yet you don't see uh, any of our legislators uh, proposing that, even though I've drafted proposed uh, bills uh, to that extent. Uh, where basically they'd have to send out notice to the individual. And unless they can show that the individual actually received that notice, that individual would be uh, immune from prosecution that first time around, in essence, so that, you know, once they do make the false statement and find out that they're prohibited, well, now they're clearly on notice. So if they try to do it again, they can be prosecuted without difficulty or that first time they could be prosecuted if they can show that they did actually have notice of that. So there's a lot of things like that, that it's just really unfortunate that the law doesn't cover. Another great one is there's no simple way for someone to simply inquire of the Pennsylvania State Police or even ATF as to whether or not you're a prohibited person. And unfortunately, I see time and time again, individuals don't know. They go into their federal firearms licensee, which is your regular gun dealer, and they ask the clerk, and the clerk says, oh, well, just we'll just run the background check on you. Or it's just a misdemeanor. You don't have to worry about it. Next thing you know, they fill out the paperwork. They're signing it subject to the penalties of perjury, and now they're going to be prosecuted. There should be a simple, streamlined way where someone can contact, whether it be the Pennsylvania State Police or ATF, and say, look, I have some things in my background. I need to know whether I'm prohibited. And the reason that's so important is, is a couple of reasons. First, when we start talking about mental health commitments, those are all protected. That's confidential medical information. And the Pennsylvania State Police will not relay that or disclose that on any of the types of background checks that are generally available to an individual. So while there is a special background check called an access and review background check that the Pennsylvania State Police offers for individuals where they want their own background, where that will disclose juvenile convictions that would not be disclosed on regular background checks. Um, The PSP, the Pennsylvania State Police, will not disclose a mental health background that they have knowledge of on that access and review background check. And that blows my mind. Why not? It can be so difficult for an attorney to find out whether someone has been actually involuntarily committed because I don't know where to start looking. And sometimes, or unfortunately, I've had a number of times, they're juvenile commitments. Mm -hmm. And, you know, think about when you were a kid, do you really remember what happened? You might remember being at a hospital, but do you know it was, you know, for mental health issues or that it was an involuntary mental health commitment? And in my career so far, I found four occasions where juveniles were committed 
merely because the parents wanted to go away on vacation and didn't have a babysitter. Mm -hmm. And this actually gets documented by the nurses in the medical records once I get them. Because what will happen is the doctor will come in and, you know, they may be initially committed and then they do further assessments and they're like, well, there's not really any problem here. So call the parents, have them come pick them up. Parents say, oh, well, we can't. We're down in Florida. (laughs) So, you know, it's just really disconcerting. The other issue with regards to background checks that now is becoming more difficult for me to advise clients is Pennsylvania passed a clean slate bill which allows for sealing, not expungement, sealing of certain nonviolent misdemeanor offenses. Well now, and it's automatic, so now I may not be able to find some of the criminal history that a client has because it's been sealed from public view, even though the Pennsylvania State Police has access to it, the Commonwealth has access to it, it's not an expungement. So that makes my job even more difficult because now there could be stuff out there that I'm unaware of that I can't find on the public dockets to be able to advise a client. So we really need a mechanism in the law that allows for an individual to say, look, I just want to know if the Pennsylvania State Police contends I'm prohibited. And if the Pennsylvania State Police does contend they are prohibited, there needs to be a challenge mechanism because Mm -hmm. I've litigated a number of cases where the PSP, the Pennsylvania State Police, has erroneously denied someone. Mm -hmm. And I have a very good track record before uh, both the attorney general, which is where an appeal goes up from the Pennsylvania State Police, and thereafter in front of the Commonwealth Court, where the PSP has erroneously denied individuals. And actually, in one occasion, we were actually successful for the first time in the history of the Commonwealth of actually getting a financial judgment against the Pennsylvania State Police that was even affirmed by the Pennsylvania Supreme Court. So, you know, there are some options, but unfortunately, uh, there just needs to be a a simple streamlined mechanism for an individual to inquire whether or not they're prohibited. Hey, everybody, this is Mike from Arms Room Radio. You're watching Meet the Pressers with Matt Mallory and Clint Macro. So sit back, kick up your feet and enjoy and exercise your Second Amendment rights responsibly. Meet the Pressers. Medical marijuana, medical marijuana cards. I know um, in the 4473 for people getting a background check, Nick's background check, that actually just changed and they updated it. I have my FFL. I have a gun store in upstate New York. And that was one of the things that has kind of been going back and forth because I've got, I've got clients that are coming to me saying, well, I've got, uh, I, I use CBD oils. Like, mm-hmm. okay, does it have THC in it? How much? I really didn't know where that line was, if they're going to perjure themselves on that 4473 or not. Uh, so I reached out to the ATF and their legal counsel got back to me and said it was a certain percentage. I'm writing an article about it, so I'm not going to give that percentage away. Um. <laughs> That's actually interesting because the law doesn't differentiate. The, right. the, I know everyone looks to the THC and they think because that's the mind altering aspect of marijuana that that should have some impact. But under the law, it just says marijuana. It right. doesn't matter yep. what the THC content yep. or that is. Or how they're deriving um, it. They're deriving it from that plant. So therefore it is marijuana derived, cannabis derived. Correct. And, yep. and the frustration I have is Governor Wolf here in PA has told people, oh, you have nothing to worry about when that is a false statement, because under federal law, marijuana is still a schedule one drug, which cannot be prescribed. That's why in none of the states that authorize an individual to use marijuana, do you see them use the word prescribe or prescription, because the doctor has licensing through the DEA. 
And if they were to issue a true prescription for marijuana, they would have their license revoked. Um, Whether you agree with marijuana being federally prohibited or not, it's not really the issue. The issue is the fact that as the law stands here today, it is prohibited. I personally think there may be some definite medical benefits to it. I've seen some people with Tourette's, uh, MS, other uh, diseases where this has been helpful. Uh, Unfortunately, because of the war on drugs, there was not much, if any, scientific research into marijuana that's now occurring. But I I do think the time has come where DEA should really deschedule marijuana, even just one level to a schedule two drugs so that a doctor could prescribe it. Because at this point in time, there clearly seems to be benefits. And when you think about it, there are far more, let's say, heinous drugs that can be prescribed. Like heroin legally can be prescribed by a doctor. Um, And one of the drugs is dilaudid, uh, that is a derivative of heroin. Uh, It's a controlled substance. It's Schedule II, but it can be prescribed. And when you put that into perspective, it's like, wow, does this really make a lot of sense? I, I like you have seen people CBD oils help them, and uh, you know if it's CBD oil with no THC and the ATF is good with that, then I mean that's really the only aspect. But I've got I've had numerous people say, well, I've got my my medical marijuana card from New York State, and does it does that mean I can't buy a gun? I mean they gave it to me and they gave me a pistol license. The state issued both, so I'm good, right? I'm like. No, because if you come to buy a gun for me, the statement you give on that 4473 is either perjury or you're going to tell the truth. And if you tell the truth, you can't get a gun. I can't sell you a gun. You're going to fail the, the NICS background check. Right. And, and even you wouldn't even run the NICS background right. check if they yep. do state that they are a prohibited person. Exactly. The, the other thing I would just caution listeners too is the fact that even though ATF can tell you that they're fine with it today, that doesn't mean they're fine with it tomorrow. I mean, bump yep. stocks, great example. Yep. You had 12 legal determinations from ATF saying, good to go. All of a sudden they said, nope, they were illegal from the get-go. And now we're taking a different position. And oh yeah, by the way, you all are in possession of post-86 machine guns in violation of the law where you're looking at 10 years in jail, $250,000 in fines. Yeah. Just blows your mind. I mean, Definitely. so anyway, just a word of caution. No, that's good. That's that's very good advice. I, I had somebody in a class last night tell me. She goes, uh, "Yeah, I've got a I've got a taser. I've had a taser for years." And I'm like, "For years?" I said, "You just admitted that you that you're illegally in possession of of a uh, a taser, or in her case, it was actually a stun gun." Uh, and it wasn't until March, the end of March, where the the judges had ruled the judge had ruled that the tasers and stun guns fall under the the second amendment in new york state so they're actually senate new york state's working on a law to to strike that from the records and allowing or strike that from the penal code and allowing people to to possess them now but it's a lot of people buy stuff on amazon have it shipped to their house and walk around thinking that they can legally have it and that's not the case yeah you're absolutely right there so you had mentioned bump stocks that's a great interlude in one of the subjects we wanted to talk about uh, you're you're involved in a, a pretty big case, right? Yes, uh, we are representing a number of individuals as well as Firearms uh, Policy Foundation in a challenge to the bump stock rulemaking. In this situation, we have Congress having defined what constitutes a machine gun, and now ATF wants to define the definition. And if we're going to go down this rabbit hole, that an administrative agency now can define the words that the Congress defined for a particular word, 
there's no end in sight. That would eviscerate Congress's ability to actually define a word because the administrative agency can just come in and say, yeah, they use that word, but we now interpret that word to mean this word. Wow. There, there would be no end in sight. Um, there's an additional very strong legal issue called the rule of lenity. And very few attorneys will even know what this is. But basically, it's a theory in the law that precludes where there are criminal sanctions from there being any type of vagueness uh, in the law. So a vagueness challenge is separate than the rule of lenity. But the easiest way to explain the rule of lenity is if you have a statute that has some sort of criminal penalties, you have to place the person on notice that their conduct would be criminal. If there's any ambiguity in that criminal statute, you're not placing that individual on notice of the fact that their conduct could be criminal. So there have been a number of statutes that have been struck down under the rule of lenity. What's even interesting is the U.S. Supreme Court has decided, it was a prior case, Thompson Center, uh, where they said that under the National Firearms Act specifically, there was a definition of short-barreled rifle. And they utilized the rule of lenity in saying, look, this definition is ambiguous. And although this challenge has been brought in the civil context, it was not a criminal prosecution. Because the National Firearms Act has both civil and criminal applications, the rule of lenity applies equally to civil and criminal law where there are still criminal penalties associated with that law. So that's why we do have a a good belief that the U.S. Supreme Court uh, may really seriously look at this case, especially since uh, this past session of the U.S. Supreme Court, we saw them take a look at some other administrative law uh, provisions and issue a a monumental decision in the one case, Kaiser's, uh, K-I-S-O-R, where it's starting to pull back on the outgrowth, let me say, of administrative practices where these administrative agencies are really all three separate branches of government rolled up into one. Because if you think about it, they are executing, well, they're not, excuse me, first they're drafting whatever, you know, interpretation they want. They're then executing it. And then the courts are deferring to them for interpretation. So in essence, they're acting as the judiciary. They're deciding the matter. So you have all three branches rolled up into one administrative agency that's clearly causing our founding fathers to roll over in their graves. Well, not to mention the fact that they're they're not elected either. They're appointed. Exactly right. And as we have seen in the bump stock case, now it's political. Whoever is in charge, whoever has the presidency or or even is the director of that administrative agency, if they have a certain political viewpoint, they can apparently now go back and change the agency's uh, interpretation without any basis really in the law just because they don't like what it said. And to have over 12 prior determinations saying that bump stocks are completely lawful and then for ATF to change course right after you have President Trump making statements saying, I'm directing ATF to implement a rule where it'll make bump stocks illegal. I mean, you just have to sit there and scratch your head and say, you know, this wasn't reasoned rulemaking. This was by fiat. The president directed the agency to issue a determination consistent with his will. And that's what the administration, or excuse me, the agency did. 
So it, it's very concerning. So we're, we're hopeful that the U.S. Supreme Court will hear this case and will truly consider the administrative law aspects uh, that are all rolled up into it. I think having a, even though Trump isn't the best proponent for, that we'd all agree that we'd want as far as the firearms uh, advocate, he's definitely better than what, what we would have had with the, uh, the latter, the other, the other individual politicians that were running. Uh, you know, this, some of the stuff we've got going up to the Supreme Court, New York State Rifle and Pistol Associations taking something to the Supreme Court versus premise. So people get a premise license, pistol license in New York City, cannot take that firearm out of the city. They can only take it to ranges within the city. They're not allowed to bring it upstate. They're not allowed to take it to competitions anywhere. They can only have it within the city. So that's been challenged, and that's heading up to the Supreme Court. Um, I honestly don't think that that would happen if we didn't have somebody who's at least somewhat pro-gun and at least uh, you know on our side to a minimal extent compared to, like I said, the other ones on the the other side of the fence if they got elected. I agree with that wholeheartedly. Yeah, but on the other hand, too, you know, the the lesser of two evil breeds complacency, and we've seen that with the law-abiding gun owner. And as soon as Trump got in, it was like, oh, we don't have to worry about this. We were talking about this before we recorded, and you know, with someone who is the lesser of two evils, that's when we need to fight harder for our liberty to regain it and get back some of the ground we've lost over the last hundred years. So even though he is the lesser of two evils, potentially, you know, I I can't say for sure, because, you know, even as anti-gun Obama, you know, as as anti-gun as he was, he didn't pass any of these, you know, we didn't have a bump stock ban under his watch and we didn't have a, some of the things that, that are going on now or that's being talked about. Now, for whatever reason, you could, we could discuss that. Uh, but the and bottom I, line is Trump is doing this and we need to hold him accountable and say, hey, dude, what's up? We put you in office. The gun owner put him in office. And, and I think we need to remind him of that. I think you're absolutely right, Clint. Um, and I always tell people, I think there's an easy way to understand President Trump, and that is simply he is truly a businessman through and through. And to him, everything is negotiable unless it's his constitutional rights. If it affects him directly in some way, then all of a sudden he seems to have an epiphany and he can understand constitutional rights. But when he believes he's beyond the fray, and would not be subject to it, then everything is negotiable. And one of the the biggest surprises to me, or just astonishments, is the fact that for how the media treats the president and how so many uh, other politicians in that treat him, especially in New York, his support, at least previously, I'm not sure where he stands right this minute, but his previous support for red flag laws, to me, is just astonishing because anyone has to think that if in New York they passed a red flag law, it would be a matter of minutes before a petition was filed against him to strip Mm. him of his right to have a, he he stated that he has a license in New York to carry a firearm and that he has firearms in New York. Uh, And I truly believe it would be simply a matter of minutes before a red flag order would be issued against him. Interesting. Very interesting. I'm, I'm waiting for a red flag order to be issued against a, a police chief. That's, that's going to come up at some point, ultimately. Uh, well, I mean, there's a, a lot of very scary positions. And quite honestly, with the red flag laws, it, it is just so draconian, so unconstitutional. And the fact remains that in every state, they have a mental health 
uh, Act of some form. Here in Pennsylvania, we call it the Mental Health Procedures Act, where if someone is of threat to themselves or others, you can have them brought into a hospital and evaluated. And if a doctor believes that they do possess some sort of threat to themselves or others, they can institutionalize that person, whereby that person gets the treatment they need, they don't have access to firearms, or any other type of weapon that could be used to harm people. And, and let's not kid ourselves. I mean, vehicles have been used to kill mm -hmm. massive amounts of people, knives. Just think about all the chemicals under your sink that could be used, gasoline. So with red flag laws, they truly are only gun confiscation laws because the only thing they do is simply take the guns from the person. They don't care about the mental makeup of the person. They don't worry about getting the person treatment. They don't worry about having them evaluated. We're gonna leave them out in society after we have this alleged real concern over their mental capacity or makeup currently. And we're just gonna let them out there with all the vehicles that they have under their possession, the explosives under their sink and everything else. It doesn't make sense. And the fact that every state has a mental health procedures act, whereas the person could be committed, there is no need for, in my opinion, red flag orders, because you already have in every state a mechanism where if you truly believe someone is a threat to himself or others, that that person can be evaluated. And in my experience, most doctors always err on the side of caution. It is extremely, extremely rare that someone is brought into a hospital and evaluated uh, under a, a, a guise of they pose a risk to themselves or others and not committed because doctors are scared for liability purposes of not committing them. And so we see the Mental Health and Procedures Act here in Pennsylvania used vindictively. We have times where one spouse is getting ready to file for divorce and they make up all sorts of allegations about the other spouse to get them out of the house, get them locked up in a hospital for a couple days while they get their belongings out or get the court filings filed. Um, so it, it's truly concerning. And we see the same, unfortunately, in some occasions with Protection from Abuse Act orders that also exist. Um, but again, at, at the end of the day, I just do not see a need for red flag orders when we already have mental health commitment statutes in every state. Hey, I'm Dr. Doug Keim with Keim Chiropractic in Monroeville, Pennsylvania, and you're watching Meet the Pressers with Matt Mallory and Clint Macro. Meet the Pressers. One of the uh, illegal ordinances that the city of Pittsburgh was passing was, a, was its own version of a red flag law. I was wondering if you'd want to touch on the situation in Pittsburgh, give uh, some folks an update on what's going on there. Sure, absolutely. So right now we are waiting on the court to make a final determination on three separate cases that are pending. So uh, NRA brought a very limited in scope challenge just simply to large capacity magazines. So it's not even to one of the ordinances in total, it's to one provision of one of the ordinances. There were a total of three ordinances passed. Uh, then obviously there's Allegheny County Sportsman's League that had previously entered into an agreement with the city of Philadelphia, or excuse me, Pittsburgh in relation to uh, a prior ordinance back in 93 they had passed regarding assault weapons. Uh, and there basically the city agreed that they would not violate Pennsylvania law. So as a result, Allegheny County Sportsman's League has filed a contempt petition for violating that agreement 
in relation to all three ordinances. Then there's the third case, which was brought by Firearm Owners Against Crime, Firearms Policy Coalition, and a number of individual plaintiffs arguing that each of the ordinances are unlawful in their nature. And so we, at this point in time, like I said, are waiting for the judge to uh, make a decision. You are right that one of the ordinances was a red flag order, which really blows my mind because now the city of Pittsburgh is taking control of the court system. They're directing the courts as to how they're going to proceed with uh, petitions for extreme risk protection orders, how the court is to process them, the fact the court is not allowed to charge any money for the filing of the petition, uh, when the court must issue an extreme risk protection order. There are so many issues of conflict between the branches of government and the fact that we're talking about a municipality that is now trying to control county court and the judiciary. So the, there are just so many concerns in that regard. Um, and we'll have to wait and see. Obviously, the city is contending that, uh, although they, they say that it's obviously lawful, that we don't have anyone with uh, standing in the Firearm Owners Against Crime case uh, because no one there has averred that they'll be subject to an extreme risk protection order, which is a little bit of a, a, a red herring type argument, but uh, the fact remains that Allegheny County Sportsman's League isn't in that same position. They don't have to establish standing because of the fact they established it before when the city entered into that agreement. Um, so we're hopeful that we'll get all three ordinances knocked out. Uh, the uh, defendants have already kind of suggested that they intend to appeal up as they are hoping that the current makeup of the Pennsylvania Supreme Court will all of a sudden overrule all of the prior precedents saying that municipalities are preempted from being able to regulate firearms and ammunition, both under Article 1, Section 21 of the Pennsylvania Constitution, as well as statutory law that's found in 18 PACS Section 6120. One of the things that I think is kind of interesting, though, and may change the city of Pittsburgh's uh, opinion on this, as well as the support they're getting from Bloomberg, is uh, whether the recent decision by the Pennsylvania Supreme Court in uh, Commonwealth v. Hicks may influence it. So Hicks involved whether uh, basically the display of a firearm, whether it's concealed or open, uh, constituted reasonable suspicion of criminal activity without anything more. And the PA Supreme Court issued a beautiful decision uh, mm -hmm. saying, no, that is not suspicious, not sufficient for uh, reasonable suspicion purposes, because it's lawful to carry a firearm in Pennsylvania, provided you have, if necessary, the proper licensing. And therefore, it's no different than stopping uh, a car to see if a motorist has a driver's license. And what was nice is I had actually filed an amicus brief. Uh, for a number of organizations, Firearms Policy Coalition, Firearm Owners Against Crime, and uh, it was an extensive brief that we reviewed all 50 states' uh, decisions on that uh, area of law, as well as the federal court decisions. And the Pennsylvania Supreme Court used about 75% of our legal arguments in case law in the final opinion that they rendered. Now, I know I've kind of gone on a tangent. The reason why I mentioned uh, Commonwealth v. Hicks is 
the PA Supreme Court took it upon itself to drop a footnote in the case where it again reaffirmed that only the Commonwealth can regulate firearms and that municipalities are precluded. And what we've seen with the current makeup of the PA Supreme Court is they like to signal issues that they know are out in the public that they believe are likely to come up before the court, and they like to give an idea of where they stand on the issue. So I think they were really trying to put a shot across the bow of the city of Pittsburgh saying, look, don't count your chickens before they're hatched. Just because we're a majority of uh, democratic uh, justices here, this case law has been established and we are not intending to simply overturn it because you would like it to be something different. So that really was promising to me. Well, it's it's important that we recognize the potential that it would move up to the next level. And so I've been very uh, passionate about continuing on with the fundraising. Uh, can you tell uh, the viewers on how they can perhaps uh, donate to the cause, so to speak? Sure, absolutely. Uh, if you, you do have any interest in trying to donate to support the litigation, uh, we do have uh, on our website uh, a law pay uh, account. We also have a bunch of articles on uh, the blog. It's blog.princelaw.com. Excuse me, that's blog, B-L-O-G dot princelaw, all one word, dot com. You can search for, you know, Allegheny County Sportsman's League or Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh will probably just get you quick enough uh, to some of the recent blog articles. And in those blog articles, usually at the bottom, we do have a link for people that gives all the information if you do want to uh, donate to the cause. Uh, obviously, as I said, we are litigating two separate cases, one for Allegheny County Sportsman League, the other one for Firearm Owners Against Crime, as well as Firearms Policy Coalition and the individual plaintiffs. Um, so anything you can provide would be greatly appreciated because uh, unfortunately, uh, the city has the assistance of uh, the Bloomberg money, and there are uh, out-of-state attorneys who are now representing the city of Pittsburgh, and since they're not being paid, there's no real issue there. Uh, so they're just running up the bills, making frivolous arguments just to simply try and uh, make pro-Second Amendment organizations uh, be, you know, kind of that old <laughs> adage, a death of a thousand cuts, yeah. um, you know, so... Uh, if you are in a position to support us, we greatly appreciate it. Yeah, definitely. You do. You do great work. Just the your, the buzz on the internet, everything you're doing, and the the uh, the drive that you have. It, the one thing that you said earlier, when you were having attorneys while you were in law school, asking you to come out and brief and, and such, that that's that's awesome. <laughs> that right there just shows you how you jump right into your into your craft and uh, and take it wholeheartedly. I had a judge just text me a couple of weeks ago asking me about the law. He goes, Hey, somebody said that I could take the, that they could take their kids out and shoot a handgun. Is that true? And I'm thinking, I stepped back, I looked at my wife. I'm like, did a judge just really text me asking me the law? <laughs> it feels kind of neat. Yeah. And, and I've had judges do that for me. They, they, the judiciary does generally know of my area of focus. I can't say expertise because we're not as, as attorneys, you know, necessarily allowed to use certain words, but it is a, a focus of mine on Second Amendment. And I've had them reach out to me in situations because they know that I know what I'm talking about. And unfortunately, the information isn't even out there for the judiciary. And when I do go in front of judges, I do find that 
Uh, usually they give me deference, even sometimes more deference than the Pennsylvania State Police. So uh, it, it, it's nice and it's very humbling. Um, but realistically, I, I really wish everyone knew the information already because I think it would make things so much easier. And I really want to see, especially individuals who are being prosecuted, advised of their rights and the possible loss of their rights. I mean, we had the U.S. Supreme Court previously hold that a non-citizen had a constitutional right to be informed of the potential deportation consequences of pleading guilty. So how can we sit here and say that a U.S. citizen wouldn't have a legal right to be advised of the potential loss of a constitutional right? Yep. Um, so I think that's another issue that we may see in the years uh, go up to the Supreme Court. And again, uh, I, I'm more than happy to work with uh, local courts and, and anyone to help get this information out there. Uh, I think it should be on guilty plea colloquies. In most counties, they use them where someone's going to plead guilty, and it should have on there. Have you uh, advised the person as to whether uh, they may lose their Second Amendment rights? Um, and I, I just think that's that's really important. Yeah, there's, uh, there's a, a lot of subjectiveness in a lot of the stuff, too. You know, we get a lot, a lot of people, a lot of places that, that the laws are one way, they're black and white, but then when they're actually applied, it comes down to the judge, the jury, the, you know, the, the politicians, the district attorneys, even the police in some case, whether they give you, give you a preference or they give you any kind of preferential treatment in the beginning when, you know, well, your speed just slow down and they let you go where another officer might be like, no, I'm going to, you know, I smell a hint of something or, or you, know, you got the little AR stick family, stick figure family in the back of your car. So it gives me probable cause to search or you know, whatever. It's, it's drastically different on both sides. It's why people, it just not black and white, which people, well, a lot of people think. Believe it or not, we were in a self-defense trial just a couple of weeks ago in Lewistown where the district attorney there didn't even know that Pennsylvania had a stand your ground doctrine. He was actually arguing that, that we don't have a stand your ground doctrine and we're even pointing him to the statute. Had no idea. Wow. He's been reading Sheer Goodman's posts. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, I'm John. And I'm Jason. Good job. From Shooter Technology Group, and you're listening to Clint Macro and Matt Mallory on Meet the Pressers. Meet the Pressers. I'm with Firearms Industry Consulting Group, which is a division of civil rights defense firm, PC. You can find us at firearmsindustryconsultinggroup.com. You can also find us on Facebook, again, with firearmsindustryconsultinggroup.com. We also do have a blog that we co-work with Prince Law Offices PC, which is my father's firm. And you can find that at blog.princelaw.com. A lot of people really know the Prince Law blog. We blog about everything from issues at the federal level regarding firearms to state issues here in Pennsylvania and Maryland. Uh, and there's a lot of great information on the blog. Usually if you have a question, you go on the blog and search it, you're usually gonna find the answer to your question uh, on there because we put out a lot of information for the public and that about the laws. Because again, I want people to know what the laws are. I don't want to see, yep. um, you know, individuals who believe that they're law abiding go out and commit crimes. Right. Well, and you've put out a ton of information for our, our viewers and our listeners. So we really appreciate that today. And uh, it was great to have you on, on the show. We look forward to seeing you out and about. And I know Clint sees you more than I do, but I, I look forward to seeing you at the, at the big shows all the time. Yeah, and Josh, I'd, I'd like to say just uh, thank you for what you're doing for us here in the Commonwealth. 
you know, even prior to getting involved with the Pittsburgh litigation and, and the more recent stuff, I really appreciate what you're doing for us. And I also would like to say thank you just personally. You've invested a lot of time uh, with me helping to educate me on, on the laws as we've gone through this process with Allegheny County Sportsman's League. And I, and I thank you very much for your time and your, and your effort and your energy, man. Well, I, I thank you. That's, that's very kind of you. It wasn't necessary, but I, I greatly appreciate that. I hope you know that. All right, cool. All right. Well, safe travels. Same to you guys. Stay safe out there and keep your powder dry. All right. Thanks, Josh. Bye. We have a lot of sponsors that made this show possible. Make sure you check them out and give them your business. This episode is made possible with the generous support of Shooter Technology Group, ASP, Sabre Red, Lee Armory, and the SFD Responder 2.0. Thank you. So it's uh, pretty fantastic that Josh was on the show. He's going to be speaking at a special hearing that's taking place on September 24th and 25th in Harrisburg. Yep. Uh, I will be there. I don't know if I'm going to be able to testify. I'm, I'm still trying to see if I can get onto the panel. But regardless, I will be there both days. The hearings are going to take place and they're going to be talking about the gun issues and mental health and all these different things. And it's important that gun owners go and have your faces seen and have your voices heard. The numbers. Uh, after, yeah, numbers. and the numbers, absolutely. Because Bloomberg is going to pay all kinds of out-of-state people Bust that he buses in. in gives them a sandwich, gives them a red shirt to wear, and gives them a sign to hold, and they'll be roaming the halls of the Capitol. Uh, we need to have gun owners at this hearing uh, and in the halls of, of uh, the legislature after or before the hearing. I believe the first day it's a morning hearing, and then in the second day it's an afternoon hearing. So there's also time, too, to go and visit your representatives and the, the members of the uh, judiciary, and that's what the, the uh, hearing is going to be with the Senate judiciary. So uh, make sure you get some days off, call in sick, whatever you want to do to get down there. Uh, but join me, join Josh Prince, Kim Stolfer from Firearms Owners Against Crime, uh, Chip Gallo. Uh, he's going to be speaking. He's uh, the vice president of Firearms Owners Against Crime, and he's also uh, a professional in the uh, mental health field. And so uh, we're, we're going to have to have lots of bodies down there. So join us on September 24th and 25th in Harrisburg. Thanks for watching the show. Make sure to like, subscribe, and share, and click that little bell to make sure you know when our next show is uploaded. And until next time, you're watching Meet the Pressers. Meet the Pressers.